Welcome to Health Hackers episode 45. The COVID-19 crisis is still ongoing and cities around the world remain under various levels of lockdown or restrictions. But today we're talking about how the pandemic may have been affecting your sleep, the content of your dreams and what you can do about it. I'm lucky enough to be joined by a researcher of sleep, health and aging who's actually been having her own weird dreams and nightmares recently. Hello, Christina Pierpauli-Parker. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me. Christina is a committee member with the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. She's a PhD student, trainee and resident of clinical psychology at the University of Alabama with work published in numerous publications, including the Journal of Aging and Health and Clinical Gerontologist. She also writes regularly for Psychology Today, covering sleep, aging and sexual wellness. Just before we get going with this discussion, it's important to remind any new Health Hackers listeners or viewers that anything you see or hear on this show should not be considered personal or medical advice. I'm sure you've all heard it before, so you know the score. Always talk to your own health provider about your concerns. The views you are about to hear from Christina are hers alone and not those of her employers at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the Birmingham VA Medical Center. So let's begin. Christina, how did it come to your attention that some people are sleeping differently since the COVID-19 pandemic started? Sure, I think it comes from three sources of knowledge. First, clinically. So I've continued to see patients remotely using telemedicine modalities. And many of the patients I see in the sleep clinic have endorsed significant and new changes to their sleep in terms of um, difficulties with initiating or maintaining sleep, experiencing unusual dreams or sometimes nightmares. So clinically, I've seen it come up, but of course, experientially. So in my own lived experience, adjusting to working from home after having a fairly rigid, consistent schedule of waking up at 5.30, getting into the clinic at 7.30, and then following the pattern of my day. And so insight has also come from observations of my own lived experiences, um, waking up perhaps a little bit later than, uh, than typical, or experiencing my own weird dreams, observing changes in my family's sleep patterns. And then, of course, the, the third source of knowledge um, about these changes comes from our understanding of the science. And what we know is that sleep, while of course a natural process, is governed by social convention. So when we wake up, when we go to sleep, in large part gets governed by things like social responsibility, when we have to go to work, when we have to pick up children, when we have to go to school. And so when those social conventions get relaxed, our natural chronotype reveals itself. And that is to say, we all have a certain propensity to sleep or feel alert. And some people cluster in the night owl bucket, some people cluster the early bird bucket, and then some people find themselves dwelling somewhere in the middle. And so when you remove the boundaries, when you remove the parameters and constraints of social convention, that natural endogenous process can reveal itself. And so many people have explained that they've seen their chronotype emerge during this change. That's really interesting. So this could actually be a healthy change for some people. 
I, I struggle to say healthy, but certainly can feel a bit more aligned with their natural tendencies to wake or fall asleep, particularly if you identify as someone who has an advanced circadian rhythm, most older adults do, or a delayed circadian rhythm, or the tendency to want to go to sleep later than most people. But the other factor here um, applies to or concerns the removal of pressure to fall asleep. So many people with insomnia struggle with the performance of sleep. Having had issues initiating or maintaining sleep, experience the sort of performance anxiety surrounding their sleep because they feel like, well, I, I must sleep. I need to go to sleep because I need to function the next day at work, around my peers, around my children and spouse. And again, when we remove that social context, the performative aspects of sleep, particularly for people with insomnia, tends to dissipate. And so in some regards, particularly for those with advanced or, or delayed circadian rhythms and those with either chronic or acute insomnia, the removal of that social pressure can create conditions more conducive to sleep. That said, for many people, COVID-19 has invited several challenges um, to their sleep, namely with regard to issues initiating or maintaining sleep, sometimes traumatic nightmares, disturbing or unusual dream content, and perhaps difficulties um, engaging in certain adherence behaviors like CPAP or BiPAP usage if they can't access their providers. What did you mean by an advanced circadian rhythm? What does that mean? Yeah, so advanced circadian rhythms refer to people who tend to fall asleep and wake up earlier than most people. And there are certain clinical criteria that govern this diagnosis. I won't regale you with those boring details, but I will say that um, anecdotally, uh, these are the people who tend to go to bed really early, so earlier than typical, earlier than usual. So maybe as early as five or six o'clock and then wake up much earlier than is socially prescribed, maybe at two or three or four. And so for many people, that doesn't feel distressing or impairing. I know many older adults, for example, who, by the way, are more inclined to have an advanced circadian profile, who feel perfectly satisfied with going to bed early and waking up early. The important distinctions here when diagnosing advanced versus delayed circadian rhythm have to do with to what extent it causes impairment and distress for that person. Meaning, if going to bed earlier than most people doesn't interfere with your ability to function and carry out your social responsibilities, and it doesn't cause you distress, then many might argue that a clinical problem doesn't exist. If, however, you are of working age and you feel this drive to sleep much earlier than typical and it interferes with your ability to attend class, to go to work, to care for your children, causes you attendant distress and anxiety because of that, that's where we get closer to the possibility of a more clinical presentation that would warrant treatment and consultation from your provider, a behavioral sleep medicine provider, who will work with you to use tools like light exposure and melatonin supplementation, sometimes not always, to manage that. 
So is it really true then that some people will always function better if they go to bed early and get up early, while others will do better if they go to bed late and then lay in the next morning? So not necessarily always true that they will function better, right? Because it depends on what we mean when we say that. It depends on the definition of functioning. However, it is true that people do have different chronotypes. People do have different propensities to sleep or feel alert at different times of the day. And this chronotype, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, tends to include those early birds, those night owls, and people somewhere in between. And that chronotype can vary within and across people, meaning that your chronotype can change across time. So maybe earlier in your in your life, you identified as you know an early bird, but then later in life, you've kind of gravitated towards more um, of night owl behaviors. So several factors can contribute to your chronotype genetics, but also social context and life changes. A primary example I see clinically. Um, stems from the observation among veterans who identified as um, as early birds, but then were night owls after they went into combat. And you can see how that would be an adaptive um, adjustment for your body to make, particularly if your job involves being hypervigilant and having to you know, fight in war. So it's not necessarily true that people will function better, but it is true that there is significant variability within and, within and across people in terms of their chronotype. And that when you align that chronotype with your environment, functioning tends to improve. But again, we have this context of social responsibility. How do you function in a social world that has certain expectations about when you work and when you play and when you rest? And how can you align that circadian rhythm with those responsibilities so that you're functioning and feeling well? Your research and clinical work also looks at older adults' physical and psychological health. Um, you spoke there a little bit about how sleep can change as we age. Is there anything typical or are there any common trends you see with older people in the way that they sleep or the amount of hours that they sleep? Yes, and again, I, I wanna note that we wanna refrain from essentializing. I cannot emphasize enough how much intra and inter-individual variability exists when we talk about things like sleep. That is all to say that people vary significantly and good clinical treatment must accommodate and consider the power of individual differences and must tailor treatment to the individual. That said, on the average, we do see fairly significant and consistent differences in sleep quality with aging. And I, I often like to joke um, to my patients that even though sleep changes with aging represent the signatures of healthy and normal aging, it is the tax that you pay for the privilege of aging. Um, we have nearly doubled the human lifespan in the 20th century. Um, and so if the tax we have to pay for that is somewhat impaired sleep, um, that to me sounds like a good deal. That said, we do observe fairly significant and consistent macro and micro level changes in sleep with aging. Macro refers to these changes in sleep architecture, so how much time you spend in certain stages of sleep, how long it takes for you to fall asleep, how many hours of sleep you get. 
And we also see changes in micro, um, these micro changes in the electrical oscillations we observe on polysomnography with aging. In terms of the larger, probably more interesting and, and practical changes, those macro changes involve difficulties with falling asleep. So we, we call that prolonged uh, sleep onset latency. So it typically takes older adults longer to fall asleep. In general, we like to tell patients that um, a healthy sleeper needs about 15 to 30 minutes to fall asleep. In fact, if you're falling asleep at the drop of a, of a hat, that actually indicates sleep deprivation. So healthy sleepers typically require 15 to 30 minutes to fall asleep, but with aging, that can take a little bit longer. So that's a canonical change of aging. With aging, we also see a decrease in total sleep time, meaning we spend less time sleeping. And the prescription for you know, the dose of sleep varies across the, the, the lifespan. So the prescription of sleep for people over the age of 65 is between seven to eight hours. Um, whereas younger adults, so 18, to um, 18 year olds need um, seven to nine. So it varies across people and it varies across time. But in general, we see that there's a decrease in total sleep time with aging. Related to that, when we look at older adults on polysomnography, so when we look at brain activity um, among older adults, we notice that they spend more time in the superficial stages of sleep. So we experience five stages of sleep, stages, you know, one, unimaginatively stages one, two, three, and four, and then REM sleep. And the sleep architecture of aging changes in such a way that more time gets spent in stages one and two, those shallow superficial stages of sleep, than in stages three and four. Related to that, older adults might also um, endorse more daytime fatigue. They are also more likely to nap during the day, and they are also much more likely to experience something called sleep fragmentation. To illustrate this concept, I like to invoke the analogy of Tetris. And in Tetris, you're working together to create these beautiful consolidated blocks. And that's what we want to see with sleep. We want to see consecutive consolidated blocks all smushed together. But with aging, we see a typical fragmentation. We see people falling to sleep, but then waking up and then going back to sleep, and that kind of rinsing and repeating throughout the night. There are several reasons why they, that might happen with aging, related to example, um, to nocturia, so having to urinate at night, pain, um, feeling too hot. This is particularly problematic for women in the throes um, of menopause. Um, and it can just also be spontaneous because that is also one of the consequences of sleep with aging are these spontaneous arousals that can cause fragmentation in your quality and duration of your sleep. You mentioned there a little bit about the sleep stages. Can you give us a quick overview of Sleep 101? At what point do we dream while we're asleep? While dreaming can happen in non-REM, so stages one through four, most dreaming tends to occur in REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. This sometimes gets referred to as paradoxical sleep because 
when we enter this stage, we experience, at least most people do, however, there are some that don't, we experience something called atonia, which is a loss of muscle tension in our bodies. So we experience this atonia, and yet we see an increase in neural activity, particularly in the frontal lobes of the brain. We see an increase in our heart rate. We see an increase in our breathing that tends to become very rapid and shallow. And then the characteristic feature of REM, this rapid darting eye movement. So it's called paradoxical sleep because physically we experience or ought to experience this atonia, but physiologically our body is engaging in a lot of metabolic, physiological, cognitive and emotional labor. So most of our dreaming occurs in REM, but again, that rapid eye movement sleep, sometimes called paradoxical sleep. And typically, again, we vary, we vary significantly, but typically we enter this stage about 90 minutes after falling asleep. The stage typically lasts for about 60 minutes, though the duration of REM increases across the evening closer to the morning. And on average, most people experience about five to six REM cycles per sleep. But with COVID, this has changed significantly in that we are either getting more REM stages because we're sleeping longer, or we're getting fewer and then rebounding into REM upon the next sleep opportunity. Let's talk about the nightmares, the weird dreams happening right now. Um, I know that you've had some, but how big a problem do you think this is? How many people do you think might be affected by weird dreams right now? Yeah, and I think it's important to pause and sort of differentiate um, our language, you know, because dreams, dreams are not necessarily problematic. Again, as uh, in psychology, we typically characterize something as problematic when it causes impairment and when it causes distress. So if you're enjoying your dreams and they're not interfering, we have nothing to pathologize. It's important to note that dreams differ qualitatively from nightmares. And nightmares refer to these repeated, unwanted, dysphoric, highly memorable, distressing events. So clinically that matters because you don't necessarily treat dreams. In fact, some might argue that dreaming represents a sign of sleep health, but nightmares on the other hand require some more targeted treatment, again, if they cause significant distress and impairment. So backing up to your question, you know, how prevalent is this? How many people does it affect? Unclear, and I think one of the exciting parts of this experience globally includes all of the research that it invites. And so additional research is needed to better describe the prevalence of things like this. All that said, I think this affects everyone. The most recent statistic I saw from the New York Times um, indicated that 36 million people in the United States have applied for unemployment. And about a quarter of Americans endorse symptoms consistent with insomnia. So one in four people report symptoms consistent with insomnia. And that statistic comes prior to the onset of COVID. All this to say the prevalence of impaired sleep, of increased dreaming, and potentially even traumatic nightmares secondary to exposures on the front line 
have likely increased and likely the statistics we have about nightmares, the statistics we have about insomnia, chronic or acute, likely underestimate the prevalence of the sleep experiences we have currently in the midst of COVID-19. Additional research will need to describe those, those patterns. Do you know if there are any common themes showing up in people's dreams during the pandemic? I can't speak to um, global themes. Again, I don't think we have enough of the science or the empirics to know. I can speak to what I see clinically and anecdotally. And a lot of the themes revolve around um, themes of vulnerability. So showing up to things naked, um, showing up to things late. I had one patient explain that she had this dream um, where she hosted um, a banquet and didn't have any food. I also have heard a lot of dreams clustering around themes of escape and safety. So running and flying away from things, um, <laughs> toilet paper, particularly when we had the scare um, about the scarcity of toilet paper. And then of course, also things like um, looking weird or feeling weird or having unusual perceptual experiences where in the dream you may smell something or see someone that you haven't seen in a really long time. But overall, I think the themes have clustered around safety and avoidance, um, vulnerability and fear, and also self-protection. Is it really possible to translate dreams or analyze them into kind of practical meanings or reflections of your life? This really depends on the school of thought from which you, you practice. So Freudians and psychodynamic folks, and that's a perfectly valid and reasonable framework, um, have learned that dreams can have latent and manifest content. And this stems from Freud's idea of dream interpretation. And, you know, when he talked about dreams, he talked about the latent content and the manifest content. I should actually reverse those, the manifest content and the latent content. And the manifest content for Freud referred to the actual literal symbol of the image. So if you were dreaming about a cheeseburger, uh, the, the manifest content would be the cheeseburger. The latent content referred to the meanings assigned to that symbol. So the deeper, more substantive psychological content. And so people, there are many people who receive training in learning how to interpret dreams using this latent and manifest content framework. I haven't received that training. That doesn't mean that that doesn't offer value. What I will say, however, is that if patients come in experiencing recurrent thematic dreams or nightmares, that means that it's probably important just by virtue of how often it's coming up. And so what I will say is if, if you are having a recurring dream or a nightmare, certainly, start paying attention to what the content of that is and what the themes are and bring that to your provider because likely there is some substantive content there that may yield some insights into your behavior change um, in real life. Certainly, 
Certainly, there is work that you can do if you are experiencing nightmares, for example, traumatic nightmares related to combat, related to sexual trauma, or even related to COVID that you can bring to a licensed and competent um, behavioral sleep medicine provider. And the treatment of choice for changing dream and nightmare content, particularly if it is dysphoric, it is distressing, and it is impairing, is something called imagery rehearsal therapy, or IRT, where you work with someone to literally change the script of the, of the nightmare such that you're not waking up in as much distress. So to answer your question in brief, dreams can have meaning, particularly if they feel recurrent across time. And if the content of that dream or that nightmare is causing you distress or curiosity, certainly start logging that bring it to the attention of your provider and consider asking for an evidence-based treatment called imagery rehearsal therapy to manage some of those downstream emotional and psychological consequences. That's fascinating. I had never heard of that kind of treatment before. Yes, we, we do it all the time among combat veterans who have failed pharma, uh, pharmacotherapy. So typically the drug of choice for for traumatic nightmares among vets and others is something called prazosin or prazosin, <laughs> a lot of variability in how people say it. Um, but more often than not, veterans and other patients prefer the non-pharmacological option just because it doesn't carry a side effect profile and the behavioral skills can last, you know, are more durable than the effects of the, of the medication. I really had no idea that you could actually change the content of your dreams or have influence on it. It takes, it, it certainly doesn't happen overnight, pun intended, but it does take, it can happen over a course of consistent um, and reliable treatment that remains, that honors fidelity to the evidence-based protocol. Now, let's talk about these four steps that you've been following and you wrote about recently in a piece online um, about how you can sleep better during the pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about those four steps? Yes, and there are catalog of behavioral tools that you can use to improve and optimize your sleep, but I typically rely on four core ones. One, daily regularity. A common myth has sort of circulated that we need to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. That has about 50% truth in it. We do not need to go to bed at the same time every day. We need to go to bed when we feel sleepy. Sometimes sleepy and tired get confused. Sleepy, like hunger, is behavioral, right? Your body tells you when it's sleepy. It's characterized by that heaviness in your body, heaviness in your eyelids. You notice your head bobbing. That's sleepy. It's behavioral. Your body manifests physical symptoms. Tired, on the other hand, refers to what I like to call this emotional, psychological, spiritual state of depletion, feeling spent, feeling like you have no bandwidth left. We typically feel tired after a long conversation, after fighting with someone, we feel drained. We only want to go to bed when we feel sleepy, not because it's 10.30 or you know 11 o'clock. It is true that we need to wake up at the same time every day, even on weekends. Um, 
our body doesn't know the difference between Saturday and Thursday. So we need to wake up at the same time every day. We call this anchoring our, our daily wake up time. And if you wake up at the same time every day, because we tend to work on a roughly 24 hour circadian rhythm, it can be a little bit more, it can be a little bit less. Because we've woken up at the same time every day, the likelihood that we'll go to bed at the same time every day, feel sleepy at the same time every day, increases. But you start with anchoring your wake-up time. And the reason you want to anchor your wake-up time is because there's very strong evidence suggesting that daily regularity in your wake-up time promotes psychological wellness, increases metabolic efficiency, and improves cognitive functioning, as well as a host of other benefits. And an analogy I like to give when justifying the rationale of this practice to patients includes, you know, taking your route to work. We typically take the same route to work. And the benefit of that is it frees us up of our cognitive resources. So we have more bandwidth to do things like listen to music or make our to-do list cognitively in our head for the day or get a coffee. I want you to imagine that one morning you wake up and you realize there's a detour to your workplace. How might that change it? Well, it would probably take more time to get to where you need to go. And in the process of attending to those changes, it deprives you of your ability to do those other things, like listen to music, get coffee, make your to-do list. And so the same thing happens to our body. When we wake up at different times, it has to reroute. And that rerouting gets very metabolically, psychologically, and physiologically expensive. And so the body rewards you for regularity because then it doesn't have to do all of those things and you feel better. So the first thing I've been doing is continuing to set an anchored wake up time. For me, that's 5.30. That sounds psychotic to a lot of people, but I am an early bird. And to scaffold this, if you feel like you can't honor a consistent wake up time, you have to learn. And so one thing I encourage patients to do is set an alarm clock, and then you wanna put that alarm clock either across the room or in an adjacent room. So this way, when the alarm sounds, you have got to turn it off and get out of the bed and be done with it. So first thing is daily regularity. Second has involved remaining physically active during the day, staying active. And in the, in the business, we call this um, daytime energy expenditure. And what this means is staying busy, engaging in mild, moderate, or highly vigorous, for me, cardiovascular exercise. But anything that gets your heart rate pumping, anything that gets you sweating a little bit uh, in a safe way, of course, ends up helping your sleep. And this has to do with a few, you know, mechanisms that I, I won't get into, but you can kind of imagine your energy like money. If I gave you $100 and you spent $50 over here, you won't have the $50 later to spend on this thing. And the same very much applies to our sleep. If we are engaging in vigorous um, daytime energy expenditure early in the day, we're not going to have that energy later, which ends up translating into much deeper sleep. It hastens our sleep onset latency, and it increases the quality of our sleep. 
the primary mechanism through which we think this happens has to do with adenosine. Adenosine accumulates during the day with daytime energy expenditure. And once it crosses a certain threshold, that's when we believe we experience sleepiness. So daytime energy expenditure helps to stimulate that adenosine. It helps to fill up our balloon of, of adenosine. And then as we sleep, that adenosine level gets reset and then accumulates again during the day. And once it exceeds that threshold, then we feel sleepy again. So physical activity can help to stimulate that. Worth noting that people, again, vary fairly significantly in terms of the stimulating effects of cardiovascular exercise and sleep. That is to say, some people can go for a run right before they go to sleep and sleep like babies. Other people cannot. Recent evidence has suggested that vigorous activity an hour or two before bed is probably contraindicated because it can delay sleep onset latency. So what I'd say is experiment with yourself and see what works for you and then adjust or titrate from there. The third thing I've done during COVID and generally has involved practicing something called stimulus control. And stimulus control in the context of sleep refers to using your bed for three things and three things only. For sleep, for sex, and for sickness. The reason has to do with something called conditioned arousal. And conditioned arousal refers to this idea that many people can report feeling sleepy in a place like their chair or a couch. And then as soon as they transition into their bedroom, their eyes are wide open. They can't sleep anymore. And the reason has to do with the meanings that your brain has assigned to the bed. And for many people with insomnia, the bed has morphed into a cue for activity rather than for sleep. Because many people with insomnia, in their attempts to achieve sleep, spend more time in bed active than they do asleep. And so over repeated iterations of pairing the bed with worry, with tossing and turning, with working, eating, watching television, the brain learns that the bed is a cue for activity rather than for sleep. And so when they enter bed, they feel aroused, hence conditioned arousal. So to prevent or to extinguish that association between bed and activity, you only want to do three things in it. You want to sleep, you want to have sex, which of course you can have in other areas, and you want to, be, you want to you know, recover in bed. So to extinguish the association between bed and activity, I typically coach patients into getting out of the bed when attempts to sleep fail, start feeling effortful or frustrating. Because as soon as you start feeling frustrated, you're initiating a cascade of stressful physiological responses that get you reinforcing the bed as a cue for activity rather than for sleep. So the antidote involves getting out of the bed when you can't sleep. Typically, we, we say 15 to 30 minutes. 
going into another room, doing something relaxing, not stimulating in low light. I like to encourage people to fold laundry or to do some rote repetitive activity. And then when you notice those symptoms of sleepiness return, right, the heaviness in your body, that's when you go back to bed. And what that does over time and iterations is restore the association of bed with sleep and extinguish the association of bed with activity. Last but not least, the fourth thing I do involves cultivating, practicing a pre-bedtime ritual devoid of anything and everything COVID or related stressors. For me, my bedtime ritual typically involves turning off the lights. We know that light, for example, particularly blue light, can interrupt the production of melatonin, uh, the hormone that promotes drowsiness. So, you know, darkness facilitates the production of melatonin, light interrupts it. So having about an hour before bed, really reducing my face time with light emitting devices, including my laptop and my phone, and then um, typically engaging in some sort of passive body heating, whether that's a warm shower or bath, simply because we, we have some recent um, evidence that passive body heating in the form of a bath or shower um, 60 to 120 minutes before bed can hasten sleep onset latency, can make you fall asleep quicker. So my pre-bedtime ritual involves turning off the lights, doing something relaxing like taking a warm bath or shower, retiring with a book, not in my bed, and then when I notice those symptoms of sleepiness returning or arising, head off to bed. So my, my COVID sleep um, first aid kit has involved a combination of daily regularity and anchoring, practicing stimulus control, retain, uh, maintaining my daytime energy expenditure, and cultivating a, a relaxing pre-bedtime ritual. They sound like great steps that you could apply even when there is no COVID-19 pandemic also. Yes, that you can and should apply. And I, you know, again, it goes back to those two factors, distress and impairment. If you feel satisfied with your sleep, you're functioning, you feel energetic and ready to take on your day, proceed, proceed with business as usual. But if you feel like you're dragging, if you feel like it's causing you anxiety or distress, or you're noticing material or significant changes in your mood, then might be the time to introduce some of these practices. They certainly can't hurt you. Um, there are certain practices that require the supervision of a, of a provider, including things like sleep compression and restriction, and certainly if you're um, using melatonin. But these other behavioral things, you can experiment with and see if and how they pay off in dividends, which likely they will. One last thing, Christina, that I just wanna to touch on. Um, I know you've written about sleep and weight. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And I think this sleep represents a very and fairly underestimated component to metabolic health. We know that the relationship between sleep and weight gain is very, very strong, very robust, and fairly consistent across studies. And I'd say that four primary mechanisms link sleep with metabolic health and metabolic health with sleep. The first is the longer you're up, 
<laughs> the more opportunities you have to eat, right? So there's just this environmental component. Um, I want you to reflect back on a time when you pulled an all-nighter or got less than, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep. You probably didn't binge on arugula, right? <laughs> you, you probably ate um, fairly specific types of food that we'll get to in a moment. But my point is, the longer you're up, the more opportunities you have to eat. That's just the first mechanism linking these two things. The second is with sleep deprivation, we see fairly consistent patterns in certain appetite governing hormones. Specifically, we see an increase in a hormone called ghrelin. And ghrelin, you can imagine like, grr, like your, your stomach is hungry and angry because it's hungry. So ghrelin stimulates our appetite. Okay, so we see an increase in ghrelin. And then we see a decrease in something called leptin, a hormone called leptin. And you can remember leptin by L, lean, like your stomach is lean. Leptin tells us we've had enough to eat. So when we are sleep deprived, we see an increase in the hormone that increases our appetite and a decrease in the hormone that tells us we're full and satisfied. Another factor here, at least from a hormonal perspective, includes the, the increase of that hormone cortisol, right? We've all heard of cortisol before, the stress hormone. And certainly in, in reasonable and low levels, cortisol has an adaptive benefit. But when it exceeds a certain amount, it can certainly lead to behaviors that are maladaptive, like emotionally eating and eating impulsively. So second mechanism of action includes the dysregulation of appetite governing hormones, namely leptin, ghrelin, and cortisol. The third has to do with the food choices we make by virtue of our body trying to achieve homeostasis. So the energy that we don't get from sleep, our body seeks out in food, and more specifically, certain types of foods, foods that are highly palatable, highly caloric, typically carb-based, sugary, and convenient. And what happens is that in the body's attempt to achieve homeostasis, it seeks out these quick and dirty sources of energy, the donut, the cheeseburger, the brownie, such that your blood sugar spikes, you get that energy that you need, and then you crash. And it's this pattern of extreme peaks and valleys in our blood glucose levels that can set the stage for things like metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So we tend to make worse food choices when we are sleep deprived. And those food choices typically include highly palatable, highly caloric foods. The fourth mechanism includes this mechanism of motivation. When you are sleep deprived, it hijacks you of your motivation to engage in certain health behaviors like exercise or prepare your own meals, right? When we are sleep deprived, we are much more likely to drive through the drive-through. We are much more likely to forego our exercise and if we do have the, the wherewithal and the bandwidth to engage that exercise routine, the quality and the vigorousness of that routine will be significantly decreased. So the fourth mechanism includes the hijacking of your motivation to engage in health behaviors and to do those behaviors thoroughly and vigorously. 
So those are the four primary, there are others, but those are the four primary mechanisms through which sleep deprivation and metabolic health are intimately and inextricably bound. Hormone dysregulation, environmental factors, the drive for homeostasis, and the hijacking of motivation. So fun and convenient fact, if you are trying to lose weight, the best thing you can do is get your recommended dose of sleep. And that varies across people, that varies across age, but generally people over the age of 65 need seven to eight, adults and adolescents between seven to nine. So if you wanna lose weight, go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, this has been fascinating. Thank you. We're up on time. I know I've got to let you go, but um, I just want people to know where they can follow you on social media or read more about you. Sure. Best place for evidence-based information, my Google Scholar profile. If you go to Google Scholar and type in Christina Pierpelli Parker, you'll see my manuscripts. Um, other sources include Psychology Today. I write engaging which explores um, and translates the science of healthy aging. And then certainly the other traditional media platforms, including Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, I am the age ambassador and on Twitter, just the just age ambassador. Thank you, Christina. Sleep well. Thank you so much.